morning. Uh, I'd like to uh, begin also with praying. I feel more comfortable. Father, thank you for this opportunity and um, thank you for this time where we're able to gather and glorify you as a body. And I just pray that as we can continue to worship you through um, your word and through songs and then communion, I just pray that um, your son Jesus would be the centerpiece of our faith. And um, as we come to this text, I pray that if nothing else is clear this morning, that uh, I, I pray that it would be clear that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. So thank you, and I ask that your spirit would be with me and with all of us as we seek to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. A very long time ago, there was a man and a woman who lived in a garden full of plants and animals. In this place, everything, and I mean everything, was very good. Their marriage was very good. Their, the plants were very good. The animals were very good. And, um, and, and you might think, how is this possible? How could a place be so very good? Well, you see, it was so very good because, because the king was so very good. And as you probably guessed by now, this isn't just any king. This is the king of kings, the king of creation. This was the Lord God Almighty. So in this place, under this king, with these people, everything was very good. Until something very bad happened. One day, a serpent approached the man and the woman and questioned them about the garden and about the king. Now this serpent, he was very crafty, and when everything was said and done, he had planted an idea in their minds, and the people began to doubt the king. They eventually stopped trusting the king altogether. In other words, the man and the woman did not consider the king very good anymore. They considered him a liar and went on to commit an act of treason against him. They rejected their king and became rebels against him. And at that very moment, things went from very good to very bad. That same place that was once full of goodness, life, and light was now full of sin, death, and darkness. Throughout history, mankind has tried to get back to this very good reality that started in the garden. But evil remained and was passed on from generation to generation. And with every passing generation, the king remained faithful, making promises to one day redeem and restore his people. However, his people continued to reject him, just like the man and the woman did all those years ago. Bad became worse, worse became hopeless, and for thousands of years, this, sin, this pattern of sin, death, and darkness continued. Until something very good happened. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, Son of God, said these words. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This morning, I want to ask you one question. Who is this Son of God? 
Believers, I'm sure you think this question is straightforward or even simple. Unbelievers, I think, I'm sure you think this question is at best irrelevant and at worst delusional. But please, just for now, I want you to try setting aside your preconceived ideas and put yourself into this narrative. There has been no solution for thousands of years to the sin, death, and darkness that plague your world. All hope is lost, but then Jesus of Nazareth comes claiming to be the Son of God, the King's Son who has overcome the world. Don't you want to know who this is? Who is he? Who is this Son of God? That is the question for this morning. And the great thing is we aren't left to fill in the blanks on our own. The King has spoken. Let us hear his word. Please, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. And in this letter, um, as a whole, John writes to the Christians who are surrounded by false teachers that are, cl- that are claiming Jesus isn't actually the Son of God. In chapter 5, where we are today, John brings up this concept of overcoming the world. He actually says in verse 4 that those born of God overcome the world, and their faith is what enables them to overcome the world. And just for clarification, John uses this term world to, des- to describe all the things wrong with the world. Sin, death, darkness, fleshly desires, corruption, evil. These are the sorts of things that overcome us in this life. And then in verse 5, where we are picking up this morning, John asks a rhetorical question. Who is this? Uh, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? All throughout his letter, John calls his readers to live a certain way, a certain way that is in accordance with God's testimony in Christ Jesus. God is light, so walk in the light. Christ is righteous, so be righteous. Love one another because God is love. Believe in Jesus Christ because he is the Son of God. And so in our text this morning, John's focus is on why Jesus Christ is the Son of God. False teachers were spreading lies, and people wanted to know, know, who is this Son of God? In verses 6 through 12, there are three aspects of Jesus Christ that are displayed, and each one demonstrates why he is the Son of God. First, we will see his person. Then we will see his witnesses. And lastly, we will see his purpose. These are kind of the three points, if you will. First, we are going to look at his person. Let us begin in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, there is some debate over what exactly John means in saying Jesus came by water and blood. Some believe John is referring to the soldier piercing Jesus' side in John 19.34 because it says blood and water came out of his side. Others believe John is referencing the sacrificial system of the Old Testament whereby water and blood were the purifying elements. And while I think these views have some merits, the, the view I take is I believe the water refers to his baptism and the blood refers to his crucifixion. These two events, his baptism and his death, they are like the bookends that summarize his entire life and death. 
At his baptism, Jesus was, Jesus was commissioned to his public ministry, and on the cross, he de declared, it is finished. And here's why I think this. The main heresy that John is addressing has to do with false teachers claiming Jesus is not the Christ. They believe that Jesus was a person and the Christ was a different entity, almost like a spirit. These false teachers, they had no problem with his baptism. They agreed Jesus was the Son of God at the baptism, but they denied he was the Son of God on the cross. That is why John says, not by the water only did he come, but by the water and the blood. He is going out of his way to make it clear Jesus came by water, not just by water, but by water and blood. And if you read John's letters, you're able to put pieces together about who these false teachers are. Starting in 1 John chapter 2, verses 20, verse 22, it says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. It seems this movement John is writing against is confess confessing and teaching Jesus is not the Christ. And then in, verse, uh, in chapter 4 of the same letter, a section on testing the spirits, John writes, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. John's statement is likely a response to false teachers who are writing that the Christ did not actually come in the flesh. And furthermore, John reminds his readers in chapter 3 that you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. It appears that John's opponents were teaching that Jesus was not sinless. And he even mentions then in Second John, writing, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a, such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. From these verses, John very explicitly says, Jesus is the Christ. There's no distinction between the two. Jesus really came in the flesh, affirming his humanity. And he also is sinless, affirming uh, his deity. And so, from these specific descriptions of the heretics and of Jesus' nature, you start to paint a picture of what exactly these false teachers were teaching. And you start to see, they thought that Jesus could be God or man. They didn't see it was possible he could be both. And this next comparison, I want to give credit to my professor, Dr. Todd Miles, it's where I first heard it. Um, some thought Jesus was kind of like Superman. If you're familiar with Superman, you know that he's not really a man. He's actually, isn't even from Earth. He's from a planet called Krypton. And he's Kryptonian. And so Superman, he looks like a human, and he acts like a human. But in reality, he's not human. He only appears to be. This is what some false teachers thought about Jesus. They thought that he looked like a human, and he acted like a human, but in reality, they didn't think he was human. They thought that he only appeared to be a human. And if he's not... They, oh, they taught that Jesus was God, but not man. And if he's not man, then he didn't truly live the perfect human life, and he can't actually die on the cross 
for the forgiveness of sins. And, if he, and he can't really sympathize with us as humans. Ultimately, we are left with no savior. Another group thought that Jesus was kind of like Captain America. If you are familiar with Captain America, you know that he originally was a little weak guy named Steve Rogers. He was no superhero. But he was chosen to be Captain America because of his courage and compassion and bravery. Once he was given the super soldier serum, then he became a superhero. This is what some false teachers thought about Jesus, in a sense. They thought that he was an extraordinary man, very spiritual man, chosen by God for his, because of his worthiness. So they taught that his, at his baptism, Jesus was anointed with the Christ Spirit, and on the cross, before he died, the Christ Spirit left him to die as a mere man. They taught that Jesus was man, but not God. And if he's not God, then his death on the cross was not enough to pay for the infinite penalty of sin. Ultimately, we are left with no Savior. You see, when John says Jesus came by water and blood, he is directly addressing these sorts of false teachings. In fact, he's addressing anyone who denies that humanity, the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. And even though these particular heresies aren't widespread today, Many people today certainly deny that Jesus was God. They say he is a good moral teacher, but he can't be God. He's just a man. John addresses people like this writing in the verse 5. If we put it into a, change it from a rhetorical question to a statement. If you deny Jesus as the God-man, you deny the good news of God. Brothers and sisters, John has made it very clear if you, overcome, if you want to overcome the world, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Who is this Son of God? He's not just any Son of God. He is the one who came by water and blood. Christ Jesus, the King's Son, through it all. He is the God-man who came through the waters of baptism and through the blood of death. Who is this Son of God? Answer, he is truly God and truly man. That's kind of the answer to point number one. This is his person. Now we are going to move on to his witnesses. Let us continue in verse 6 through verse 8. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. So in my undergrad, I studied advertising. And if there's one thing I know about advertising, it's that nothing beats a good testimonial. Why is that? Well, we tend to trust testimonials. John is doing something similar in this passage by laying out four witnesses who, in unity, all testify that Jesus is the Son of God. It's like their little testimonies. The first three witnesses are the Spirit and the water and the blood. And to better understand his point, we're going to briefly, briefly look at some texts from Jesus' baptism and his death. At the moment of his baptism, we read, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God 
descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, um, shortly after Jesus died on the cross, we read, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So in these two passages, we see the Spirit and the water and the blood all testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. They all three are saying the same thing. They're in agreement. Now at this point, John expects some of his readers to start doubting the testimony of God. And in response, he writes verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. What he is doing here is he's making an argument from lesser to greater. Jesus uses similar logic when he says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This kind of argument appeals to a lesser truth to prove a greater truth. Here's a modern day example. If driving 20 miles over will get you a $200 fine, then surely driving 30 miles over will give you a $200 fine. It's pretty simple when you think about it like that. And so if, if we receive the lesser testimony of men, then it would follow we should receive the greater testimony of God. As John continues, he writes of another witness, the believer. In the first half of verse 10, he writes, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And if you are a believer, you know what John is talking about here. When sinners are transformed by the Spirit of God into new creations, they have the testimony within themselves. People in today's world, they want to explain away Jesus, and they want to explain away God, and they want to explain away the Bible, but you know what they can't explain away? They can't explain away the fact that I was blind, and now I see. And I was lost, and now I'm found. And I was dead, but now I'm alive. Brothers and sisters, rejoice, for God has made it clear. His testimony. And he has made it clear even to sinners like you and I. We can, testi- we can testify with the Apostle Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The testimony of God is within us. That's why Christians for 2,000 years have been willing to die for the faith. One of my favorite early church fathers is Polycarp. If you were friends on Facebook, Facebook you already saw this, but I wanted to include it. Uh, he, his sto- the story of his death is so amazing. After he was arrested for being a Christian, he was basically told to deny Christ and you'll be set free or die. <laughs> and the Roman official says to him in the story, Deny Christ and I will set you free. And Polycarp responds, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How could I deny my king and my savior? And the Roman official goes on to threaten him, saying, Oh, well, I'm going to feed you to the animals, the wild animals I have. And Polycarp responds, Call them in. 
It's unthinkable for me to deny Christ. Then the uh, Roman official is, seems to be kind of like he's raising the stakes. He says, call them in. Or no, he says, uh, fine, if the animals aren't convincing, I will have you burned at the stake. And then this statement by Polycarp, just amazing. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment preserved for the ungodly. What, why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And then he's burned at the stake. But the believer, God's testimony, is true and good and beautiful, and it's within them. But this is not the case for the unbeliever. As we continue in this verse, it says, Whoever does not believe Jesus, whoever does not believe God, made him a liar, because he does not believe, has not believed in the testimony of God that God has borne concerning his son. The idea of doubt that was plagued, that plagued humanity in the garden, that idea remains. Hear the scriptures, for they do not teach you can be neutral towards the king and his son. You are either a follower of the king, or you are an enemy of the king. You are either dwelling in the kingdom of light or in the kingdom of darkness. You either believe the king or you reject the king. And if you are a doubter today, I urge you, purge yourself of this doubt that continually, continually leads you down the path of sin, death, and darkness. Even if you reject God, you must admit there is something broken about this world. Trust in the king, for he is faithful, and he promises redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. So let me ask again, who is the Son of God? Answer, he is the one who has the spirit and the water and the blood, and every believer from every age, all testifying that he is the Son of God. It's kind of the second point, part two. These are his witnesses. Now we are going to look at his purpose. So his, his person, his witnesses, now we're on to his purpose. Let us read verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Where do you seek life? And when I say life, I mean, where do you seek happiness? Where do you seek satisfaction? Where do you seek fulfillment? Maybe you seek life in your work. You spend countless hours working and working, and when you're not working, you're thinking about work. Striving for success in your job makes you feel valued, and, giving, and gives meaning to your otherwise meaningless life, you think. You think to yourself, if I just put in the time, if I just work harder, if I just master my craft, if I just get that promotion, then I will finally have life. Maybe you seek life in entertainment. You end a long day by escaping reality because you think that watching others live the life you want is easier than living your own. 
Every Sunday morning, you find yourself constantly checking your phone for score updates and social media updates and news updates because the preacher, what he's saying is just not interesting to you. It doesn't entertain you. You say to yourself, if I just keep watching this show, if I just keep playing this game, if my team makes the playoffs, finally, then I'll have life. Maybe you seek life in being religious. You believe in God and you enjoy thinking about Jesus and read your Bible, but when you're honest with yourself, you only feel alive when you're recognized for doing good deeds. You like maintaining a good reputation, a religious reputation, because it makes you feel superior to other other people who aren't as religious as you. You say to yourself, if I just learn how to impress people with my prayers, if I just join this ministry team and lead this community group and eventually become a leader in church, finally, then I will have life. The very things that you seek life in will be the death of you. They, They promise fulfillment but they never truly deliver. They offer hope, but only ever leave you hopeless. You think you are following to light, the light only to realize you are in darkness. If you travel the globe and see everything there is to see, you won't find life. If you look within yourself and you search the depths of your soul, you won't find life. Even if you gaze at a starry sky and contemplate your existence in this vast universe, you won't find life. If you truly want life, you will only find it in Jesus Christ. In John 14, Jesus tells his followers that he's going away to prepare a place for them. And Thomas, one of his disciples, says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Show us the way. He's expecting some physical place or some physical direction. I get the feeling he, he like wants Jesus to pull out a map and like, here you go, this is where you go. Uh, but Jesus doesn't show us a way. He is the way. He doesn't show us a truth. He is the truth. He doesn't show us how to get to life. He is the life. You see, this is what differentiates Christianity from every other religion that has ever existed. All other religions teach that you must walk a path, and if you follow their teachings and you live a moral life, then you will earn life and peace. Only Christianity teaches that true life and peace are found in a person who comes to us and calls us. And that this person, Jesus Christ, did what you could never do so that you might have the life you could never earn. In verse 12 of our text, John makes it abundantly clear, saying, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. If you want life, you must have the Son of God. So question again, who is this Son of God? Answer, he is the source of life. And not just any life. This, is, this life he offers is the life, the true life. In other words, he is the source of life eternal. This is his purpose. This is why he came, to be the source of life, true life. In the next verse, John informs his readers 
his purpose for writing this section and really his entire letter. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The very good king who I began with, he broke that pattern of sin, death, and darkness that started all those years ago in the garden. He by no means will clear the guilty, but all those who have been cleansed by the blood of his son, he will declare righteous. This is the great exchange which took place on the cross. Jesus Christ took on the sin, death, and darkness that sinners deserve. And instead, sinners receive the righteousness of Christ. The Son of God on the cross said, It is finished. He is the way for things to be very good again. If you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life, the King of Kings no longer sees you as an enemy, he sees you as his beloved son. Or daughter. If you are a follower of the king, rejoice, for he has pardoned your sins. He has granted you life eternal in his son. If you are a rebel against the king, I urge you to re-examine your allegiance. You live in a world that is full of sin, death, and darkness. You have no hope, and you have committed treason against the king. If you continue to, not, to, to deny him, you will never overcome this world. Only Jesus Christ can save you. And if you trust in him, you will receive life. And not just any life, but life eternal. Living amongst the king's people, under the king's power, for the rest of your life, and into the life to come. I want to conclude with a quotation from Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Only Jesus Christ, Son of God, can save you from your sins. Only he offers true rest for your souls. Only he provides life. Not any life, but life eternal. The king has spoken. Let us have ears that hear and hearts that seek true life in his son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Um, we just praise you for your faithfulness and your love. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on behalf of sinners who deserve nothing more than punishment because we have rebelled against you. I pray that those who reject you would reconsider and would follow you as some of us today have done. And again, Father, um, I just pray that whatever is of me this morning, I pray that would be forgotten. Whatever is of you, my King, I pray that that would be clear to your people. 
as we continue to worship you in song, I pray that we would have these truths penetrating our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.